Section 5 of The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 5, February 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Helen Taylor, Lincolnshire. The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 5, February 1896, Section 5, the Prince Ward by Claude M. Giraudoux. The hospital was almost finished, but as there were several wards still unendowed, the board of managers gave a reception, ostensibly to enable a curious public to inspect the building, in reality to obtain benefactions. Among the visitors was a Mr. Prince, a southerner, and reputed wealthy. He seemed greatly interested in the hospital and selected for endowment a single ward on the second floor, Department of Surgery. It was at once completed at his expense and christened with his name. His first occupant was his wife. She looked like a dying woman to the superintendent, but he entered her case on the new books without comment and she was examined by the surgeons in charge. They advised an immediate operation as the only hope, and that a slight one, of saving her life. In fact, they knew she could not recover, either with or without it, but the operation would be an interesting one. I did not think I was so ill, said Mrs Prince, pathetically, as the nurse took her back to her room. Guess she hasn't looked in a glass lately, was the attendant's unspoken comment. She looks for all the world like a starved cat, she said to another nurse later on, with the big green eyes and the black hair. I won't have a sweet time combing all that hair. It's about two yards long. She's more hair than anything else. The morning of the operation found Mrs Prince cold with nervous terror. Do you think I will suffer much? She inquired of the nurse tremulously. Oh, no, indeed, replied that functionary with professional cheerfulness, plaiting away at the endless lengths of hair. If I was you, I'd have about half of this cut off. Mrs Prince looked at the long, heavy plaits, then up at the nurse, her grey eyes darkening. If you cannot take care of it, she said quietly, I will tell the superintendent to send me another woman. The nurse coloured. Oh, I, I don't mind, she said awkwardly. When the toilet of the condemned was completed, Mr Prince came in with a huge handful of roses, smiling genially, as his eyes fell on his wife. Why, petite, you look like John Chinaman in that funny shirt. She smiled in return, but wanly. I suppose I do look absurd. She held out her arms. He filled them with the roses and sat down by the narrow bed. She turned aside her head to hide the sudden tears. He drew her plaits of hair from neck to heel and bent to kiss her cheek as the doctors came in to administer ether. Madame Canaris is here, he said softly, and begs to see you. May she come in? Madame Canaris? She stared up at him with dilating eyes. When did she come to... What is she doing here? The nurse said I might come in for one little moment, said an exquisitely melodious voice at the door, directly facing the sick woman. 
The men all looked up. A woman, young, beautiful as the day, stood on the threshold, her tender deep blue eyes fixed upon the patient with an expression of the liveliest emotion. Her radiant hair, her dazzling complexion, her superb figure enveloped in furs, and the indescribable grace of her attitude made the sick woman appear grotesquely skeleton-like and ghastly. It was life confronting death. Death raised itself on an emaciated arm and spoke to life. I cannot see you now, madame. The physicians have just come in, as you see. I, I beg that you will go away. Prince sprang to his feet and approached the visitor. I did not know the physicians would be here, he murmured. Shall I take you downstairs? Will you wait for me in the parlours? While he was speaking to Madame Canaris, his wife motioned to a surgeon. I am ready, but, oh, doctor, are you sure it will make me quite dead? Are you sure I shall not be just iced over with a frightful consciousness underneath? Are you sure? Quite sure, the surgeon said pityingly, stealing a glance at the figures in the doorway. You will be blotted out of all existence during the operation. Do not be afraid. He took her cold hand into a warm, compassionate palm. In a few seconds she was carried past her husband and Madame Canaris, who was still talking in the corridor. Prince was startled as the procession of doctors and nurses came out of the room. His companion glanced at them, and her brilliant colour faded. Do not leave me, she gasped, holding him by the arm. Take me away. I should not have come. Prince hesitated. The stretcher was being carried into the elevator. He turned to the beautiful, agitated woman beside him, drew her hand through his arm, and they went downstairs together. The operation was long, difficult and dangerous, taxing both on nerve and skill. The operating room was very hot. One of the nurses fainted and a young doctor, sick at heart and stomach, helped her away, glad to get out himself. The operating surgeon, a keen, self-possessed practitioner, looked at the patient when all was over, with a deep breath of relief. The very worst case of its kind I ever saw, he remarked to a colleague. It would be a miracle if she recovers, although I would give one of my ears to make it possible. After three days of delirium and torture... The woman died. It was the 28th day of February. Madame Canaris came into the ward alone and stood for a few moments, looking down at the face on the narrow pillow. She could never have recovered in any event, she said questioningly to the nurse. I don't see how she could, was the calm reply. Madame put out a flashing hand. May I see? she said with delicate curiosity. The nurse lifted a layer of batting. The beautiful visitor gave a cry of dismay and clapped the hand to her face. I thought it would make you sick, the nurse said quietly. I guess you had better go to the window. Madame stood with her lace handkerchief pressed to her lips and gazed upon the ice and snow without. Presently, she said, Mr. Prince desires the hair of his wife. Will you kindly cut off the plaits close to the head? 
It does seem a pity, observed the nurse, snipping at the plait stolidly, to take the only thing from her she seemed to care much about. I guess they can bury my hair with me. She's not to be buried, replied Madame softly, still gazing upon the whiteness without. It would be a pity to burn such splendid hair, would it not? Oh, said the nurse, I see. Going to send her to the new crematory. Are you a New Englander? gently inquired the lady, turning her dark blue eyes upon the inquisitive attendant. I guess I am. Why? I've always heard that New Englanders asked a great many questions. The nurse coloured and snapped the scissors vigorously through the last strands of hair. The thick, short locks stuck out stiffly behind the dead woman's ears. The nurse held out the snake-like braids to Madame Canaris, who drew back a little. "'Please put them in this box for me,' she said quickly. "'Mr Prince will send for it.' In leaving the room, she touched the dead forehead lightly with a finger, crossed herself, and murmured something in a strange tongue. "'Catholic, I guess,' sniffed the nurse." watching her as she went down the corridor with that mingling of envy and unwilling admiration that the beautiful Greek always succeeded in implanting in the bosoms of less favoured sisters. In a few days' time, Prince and Madame Canaris returned to the hospital with a picture they desired hung in the ward. It might have been an idealised portrait of Mrs Prince, the face of a saint against a background of sunset, or the head of a martyr dark against flame, as the imagination of the beholder should suggest. The frame was oval, with an inscription below the head. It was also heavy, of plated bronze, with a box-like backing. It was the work of a finished artist, however, and, being idealised, the portrait was beautiful. It hung above the bed, as the other wall spaces were occupied with cheerful landscapes. Madame Canaris laid a loose bunch of pomegranate flowers on the pillow beneath it, and she and Prince left B the next day, as they thought, for ever. The new hospital was a popular one, but for some reason the Prince ward remained vacant. There was nothing mysterious about this. It had been bespoken many times for patients, but a change of mind would occur so naturally that at first nothing was thought of it. In a year or so, however, the continued vacancy began to be a subject of remark among the nurses, but they were too busy and too practical to regard it in any other light than that of a provoking pecuniary loss to the establishment. One night in January, the night nurse of the second floor, at one end of which was the Prince Ward, sat drowsily waiting for medicine periods, or the sound of bells, from the various rooms. It was the last night of her watch and she was worn out from a month's sleeplessness. Toward midnight, the tinkle of a bell roused her. She went from door to door trying to place it. As she neared the prince ward, it sounded again. She paused at the door. Very strange, she thought. Surely there is no one in here. But to make sure, she went in. The room was icy cold. A low moan came from the narrow bed. Water! Murmured a voice inarticulately. Water! 
Wait until I turn on the light, said the nurse, going towards the chimney place. She stepped on something, tripped, would have fallen, caught at the bed and grasped a long, thick rope of hair. She lifted it and laid it alongside the figure it evidently belonged to. Water! Water! moaned the inarticulate voice again, close to her ear. The nurse went out, much puzzled, and returned with a glass. Two icy hands touched hers as she held it to the lips. How cold you are, she exclaimed, and this room is like a frozen, frozen tomb, she added. You must get warm. No, no, said the voice, ending in a low wailing moan the nurse looked curiously down at the face on the pillow scarcely anything was visible but two large dark eyes and two immensely long snake-like plaits of hair did you come in tonight are you waiting for an operation asked the perplexed nurse yes the voice was inarticulate again how strange the day nurse or, or the head nurse did not tell me. I I don't know what to make of it at all. I, are you sure you do not want any light or, or, or heat? The reply was so inarticulate that she bent down to listen. A faint odour turned her quite sick. She went out hastily into the corridor, leaving the door ajar. She was worried, nay, more. She was conscious of a feeling a trained nurse had no excuse for. She had a crawly sensation along her spine. I must be dreaming, she said to herself angrily. She went back to her chair and table and, in spite of heaviness and sleeplessness, listened for the bells with a qualm of absolute fright whenever the sound came from the end of the corridor. At last, just before daybreak, the bell she was straining her ears for rang again. She plunged her head into cold water, took a glass in her hand and approached the prince ward. For a second, she paused at the door. A wild impulse to dash down the glass of water and rush, shrieking through the corridor, almost overpowered her for a heartbeat. Then her training reasserted itself. She smiled satirically in her own face and went in leaving nevertheless the door wide open behind her she paused beside the bed thirsty again i have brought some water for you she slid a hand to lift the head she bent over the pillow with a steady glass the bed was empty it was not even made up there were no sheets on it, no pillow slip. The room was like a frozen tomb. The glass dropped from her hand, deluging the mattress with its contents. She rushed from the room. Fortunately, her felt slippers made no sound. The door swung to noiselessly behind her. She fled up the corridor and flattened her back against the wall at its furthest end, shaking with a mortal chill. There she remained until the grey light of a snowy day crept through the window at her side. When the day nurse, rosy and refreshed, came to relieve her, she said, eyeing the nurse a little curiously, I guess you'd better tumble into bed as soon as you can, Miss Evans. You look as if your month's work had just about finished you. The nurse's turn came next was the one who had been with Mrs Prince. 
The last night of her watch was the 27th of February. She had had an unusually hard month's work and was exceedingly tired and not a little cross when, at midnight, a bell rang which she could not locate. Some plaguey wire out of gear again, she said, provoked, after a second fruitless search for the elusive tinkle. She had turned at the end of the corridor and stood just by the prince ward. The bell rang sharply. Well, I want to know, she said aloud, if it isn't in this ward. She went in immediately and would have turned on the light when she was stopped by a curiously familiar, although indistinct, voice. Water! Water! For the land's sake! ejaculated the down-eater, going towards the bed. What's this? Her foot slipped on something. She tripped and came near to falling. She stooped and lifted from the floor a long, heavy plait of black hair. She stood stupidly, holding it in her hands, staring down at the bed. If I was you, she said mechanically, I'd have about half of this cut off. Two large, dark eyes stared up at her. Why? She stammered, too stupid to know when she was frightened, too trained a nurse to understand. Why? You died! A low laugh echoed in the room. How cold you are in here, the nurse went on. What will you have? Water, said the thick voice inarticulately. The nurse went out. As she closed the door behind her, she was seized with a sudden cold shaking. She went to the room of the head nurse and woke her. Say, Mrs. Wax, who's the patient in the Prince Ward? Why wasn't I told about her? Mrs. Wax was wide awake instantly. Prince Ward? There's nobody in the Prince Ward, Miss Hall. Yes, there is too. I've just seen her and spoke to her. Seems to me I've seen the woman before. But the one I knew died after the operation. What? asked Mrs. Wax keenly. She'd been in the hospital only six months, but she was a personal friend of Miss Evans. Who was she? Miss Hall gave a brief account of the case. What was her name? inquired Miss Wax, sitting up, large and alert. Why, it was Prince, said the night nurse. She was the wife of the man who endowed the ward. Mrs Wax gazed for a moment into the stolid face before her. I think you have had a dream, she said calmly. I don't sleep on duty, whatever the others may do, retorted Miss Hall. Miss Wax lumbered out of bed, untying her cap strings. Go back to the floor, she said quietly. I'll be coming to you after a bit. She dressed quickly and presently waddled into the corridor. Now you go and get to sleep in my room, Miss Hall, and I'll be taking your place tonight. The hospital was filled to overflowing with gripe cases. The epidemic was raging in the city and the Prince Ward was the only vacant spot in the place. Its defective register had prevented its use. It could be but insufficiently heated from the fireplace. Mrs Wax went to it at once and turned on the electric light. She then stripped the bed of everything except the springs, carried the small table to the other side of the room, put out the light, took up the handbell and locked the door as she went out. She then sat down at the table in the corridor, opened a Bible 
and began to read. She had read perhaps 15 minutes when the bell tinkled. Her long experience enabled her to locate it almost immediately. She went to the ward, adjoining the prince. No, the patient there had not rung for her, but was awake, and sure the bell next to her, on the right, was the one. It had rung before. The prince ward was on the right. As Mrs Wax stepped into the corridor, the bell sounded again. It was the prince ward. The Englishwoman was convinced that an ugly trick was being played. Thoroughly indignant, she unlocked the door and stepped within. A low moaning and a peculiar unpleasant odour arrested her progress towards the electric button. The first turned her ruddiness pale. The second made her sick. Her foot slipped. She stumbled, twisted her ankle and... Being a heavy woman, she fell on her knees, catching at the bedrail. A hand crept upon her shoulder, striking cold through her gingham dress. Water, breathed a hoarse voice at her ear, inarticulately. Water! In spite of the strained ankle, the head nurse got upon her feet. She staggered out of the room, followed by the moaning cry of, Water! Water! She shut the door behind her and crept along the corridor, holding to the wall. Then called one of the private nurses and bade her light up the prince ward. The woman did so, remained in the room a few moments, then came back leisurely. Well, said Mrs Wax. Well, returned the nurse, I opened the window, did not know the ward had been used lately. Pretty bad case, wasn't it? Bad case? repeated Miss Wax, a light shining through her nostrils to her brain. Yes, perhaps. Perhaps, repeated the nurse satirically. I guess I ought to know by this time. I should say there hadn't been much left of that case to put underground. She went back to her case, wondering at the stupidity of the English, generally and in particular. Mrs Wax put her aching foot into hot water and meditated. The 28th of February dawned dark, for a blizzard from the northwest was blowing. It was the worst storm of the last half of the century. Men were lost and frozen to death in the streets while going from their business houses to their homes. A lady, attempting to alight from a carriage at one of the railroad stations in order to make an outgoing train, slipped or was blown down upon the icy pavement. She was taken up insensible and carried to the nearest hospital. I do not think we have even a corner vacant, said the superintendent, but of course she cannot leave the building now. She sent for Mrs Wax. The Prince Ward is unoccupied. The head nurse glanced at the stretcher and hesitated. Yes, but it is next to impossible to heat it, you know, doctor. Do the best you can, replied the superintendent. The woman should have been taken to the emergency, but you see what the weather is. Mrs Wax divested the traveller of her velvet and furs, her lace and linen, the bag of diamonds secreted in her bosom, her long perfumed gloves, her silk underwear, her jewelled garters and hairpins. She left nothing on her but the black pearls in her ears and the magnificent rings on her fingers. Then... She slipped a hospital shirt on her fair body and tucked her shining curls into the cap. 
The fall had fractured the bone of one leg and several ribs. The ward surgeon, entering, stared at the sight of the beautiful face on the narrow pillow. Instantly, the scene of two years before renewed its living colours on the sensitive film of memory. He even recalled the name of the woman before him, so deeply had that scene and her beauty impressed him. It is Madame Canares, he said. The patient opened her dark blue eyes. I am Mrs Prince, she corrected. I wish to send a telegram to New York at once. She turned white, fainted again. The broken bones were attended to with expedition. Before night the telegram was sent. There had been some delay of letters, some misunderstanding that had sent Mrs Prince to be by mistake. That lady's brilliant eyes examined her surroundings. I am in the hospital at Prince's ward, she said presently. Yes, said Mrs Wax, disturbed by the coincidence of names. I selected the fittings and furniture for it, Mrs Prince went on softly, but I did not think at the time of myself. She looked at the picture above the bed. You must have that picture taken down for me, Mrs Wax. I do not like to have anything hanging over me, even if it is the counterfeit presentment of a saint. An ugly sneer disfigured her delicate lips for a moment. I will have it taken down as soon as possible, said the head nurse, but it cannot be done immediately, my dear. We have sent out all the nurses we can spare, and extra beds have been put in nearly every ward. I am too heavy to risk myself on a ladder, but I will see the superintendent about it after a bit. It is well fastened up, I assure you. Towards night, not hearing from Mr Prince, Madame grew nervous, then feverish. In a sick bed for the first time in her life, strapped immovably to its narrow confines, her head beginning to throb with agony, she lay suffocating with impatience, suspense and apprehension. She, the spoiled darling of every good fortune. The raging storm shrieked unceasingly about the house of pain like a legion of infernal spirits. There were so many others more critically ill than herself, and the number of nurses was so reduced that she was of necessity left alone much of the time. Just before midnight, Mrs Wax came in, weary, but the embodiment of strength and kindness. I think, she said coaxingly, you must try and get to sleep. I shall give you something to quiet you, and then turn off the light, and I hope you will soon drop off. I shall be near you in the corridor. If you want anything, just tinkle the bell. Close to hand, you see, my dear. She administered a draught, straightened the pillow, then bent down impulsively and kissed the lovely disquieted face maternally. Two beautiful arms closed about her ample back and the patient was sobbing on her generous bosom. Come, come, you must be brave. They did not want me to tell you, but a telegram came half an hour since for you. Your husband will be here sometime toward morning. Will you go to sleep now like a good child? Ah, I thought so. She turned off the light and went out, leaving the door half open. After making the round of the corridor, she dropped into a chair. Her head fell forward on the table before her. In all her experience as a nurse, she had never done such a thing before. She fell asleep at her post.
She was roused by the sharp, continued ringing of a bell. She sat up, dazed, rubbing her eyes. The superintendent, the resident physician, and a stranger were coming up the wide staircase. The bell had never ceased in its imperious, insistent summons. Without stopping to think, the head nurse ran ponderously, but swiftly, to the prince ward. As she stepped within the threshold, the bell suddenly ceased, but the air was vibrating. She ran to the mantelpiece, reached up and turned on the light. The three men were at the door, the fur-clad stranger, the tall and handsome apparition, carrying a handful of roses. They all stared at the figure of the head nurse, petrified in position, her fingers on the key of the electric bulb. She stood with her usually florid face, now paper white, turned over her shoulder, her staring eyes fixed upon the bed. Mr Prince entered quickly, then drew back with a loud cry of fear and horror. The roses fell from his hands upon the edge of the bed and over the floor. The heavy picture had dropped like a stone from its anchor in the cornice. Its edge had struck the sick woman on the breast and forehead, but it had fallen painting upwards. From beneath it uncoiled on either side, two immensely long, rope-like plaits of black hair, between which the painted face smiled upon the white faces by the bedside. The superintendent was the first to recover his wits. He sprang forward, lifted the picture, wondering at its weight. As he did so, the back, loosened by the fall, fell to pieces. A heavy bronze jar rolled from the face on the pillow, scattering thin, fine, dust-like ashes that powdered the luxuriant curls and floated above the stiff, strapped figure in a fine, impalpable cloud. Then the ashes settled slowly upon the lifeless body, upon the scattered roses on the floor, upon the splendid furs, of the man who shrank against the wall and put his hands up against the dreadful sight. End of section five. Recording by Helen Taylor, Lincolnshire, 2021.